Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. It is great to worship with you this morning. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am excited to be here with you this morning. I, um, I definitely see some typical, some of your faces that are typically 5 p.m. attenders, um, I, so I get it. <laughs> um, we, can we just find out real quick, how many of you are cheering for the Chiefs today? How many, how many for the 49ers? I decided to wear red today because that represents both. <laughs> um, how many of you really don't care and are in it for the commercials? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, one, one announcement that I wanted to be able to make today um, that's an important one for us. We have um, a staffing change that I want to announce for Redemption Hill and um, that we are excited about. The... Um, Annabelle has been our director of children's ministry for the last year. She stepped in um, along with her full-time job, has been filling that role, and it really has helped us implement systems, get things, our structures organized. And over the last year, our children's ministry has been incredibly strengthened by her work and with the renovation that we were able to do together. And a year into it, she has said that she feels like she has fulfilled her responsibilities to the church, and one full-time job is enough. And, um, and so she would like to step back from that. And the good news is that Tatum Foote, um, effective yesterday, is our new director of children's ministry. Um, and so we have a seamless transition in that vital ministry in our church. And so if you see Tatum today, give her a hug and thank her for the way that she serves our church. Um, with Tatum, we really were just saying, you know, you're here every Sunday anyway. And so we'd just like to pay you for what you're already doing. Um, and so we're grateful for what she does and for the way that Andrew and Tatum lead that ministry. Um, all right, with that, let's pray together, and we're going to jump right in. We have a lot to cover today, and so I'm going to try to do it um, in the time allotted. Let's, let's pray. Um, Father, we lift this time to you today. We, we come to um, a text that will confront every one of us. And so we pray that you would open our ears to hear you, that you would give us softened hearts, that that we would understand that your word exposes us so that we can find healing and hope. And we pray that, that in the midst of that confrontation of our own hearts and our own sin, that you would call us to hope that your kindness and goodness to us would be the thing that strikes us most deeply and that that kindness and good, goodness would lead us to repentance and hope in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Man, we are in a study in the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Romans. We still have some scripture journals available in the back. And um, if you want to grab one of those for a suggested donation of $4, um, it'll also be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles available in the back as well. And you can take one. It's our gift to you today. Um, today's passage, we're in Romans, we're in chapter one. And today's passage will hit every one of us. It is, um, a, you know, I think that and in that, I want to just set the stage a little bit. I think that at times we can believe that our modern sensibilities are too much for Christianity to have an adequate answer. We think culture has changed too much. And why would we look back at something that was written a couple thousand years ago and historical claims from a couple thousand years ago? And, and, and we question, does that really speak into our context now? Um, but in that, we fall victim to what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. And we... We think that we are so much more sophisticated now and so much different now when the reality is that we've forgotten, our own, really, we've forgotten history. And we don't understand and don't spend time to understand what the realities were in first century in the Roman Empire as these things were written. And there's an author named Larry Hurtado that explores that in a couple of books. This first one is called Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World, um, which sounds like a very academic title, and it is. His second book was shorter, and it was titled, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Century? And, and, that, and in that, he note, noted five features of the early church as it broke into the world in the context of the Roman Empire. 
He said it stood out from the rest of the culture around it for these reasons. First, it was multiracial. It, there was unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling to the Roman world because people were coming together and claiming a shared identity that otherwise had no reason to be together. The second feature, he notes, is that it was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so for Christians, vengeance was unheard of. And in, in spite of intense persecution, where people were being killed for faith in Christ, there was no retaliation, and that was striking in the time. The third characteristic, so multiracial, a community of forgiveness. Third, that, it was, that they were famous for hospitality to the poor and the suffering. And so during plagues, Christians wouldn't flee the city or succumb to fear, but they would stay in the cities and care for the sick and, and dying, and often that cost them their own lives. The fourth is that they were committed to the sanctity of life. One of the um, practices in first century Rome was that unwanted infants were literally thrown onto trash heaps to die of exposure or to be snatched up by slave traders, and Christians took them in and saved the lives of thousands of people and lifted up the dignity and value of women and of slaves and of the poor and the unwanted people of the Roman world. And the fifth is that the early church was sexually countercultural. In Rome, sex was an appetite that couldn't be resisted. And so it was assumed that that, that, that this is what temple prostitution existed for, was that, uh, you know, essentially on your lunch break, a guy could go and, and take care of that appetite. And men would have, because of the power dynamics of the empire, men would have sex with anyone of lower status, slaves and prostitutes, even children, men and women, and Christians stood out with an entirely different way of thinking about sexuality, not as a mere appetite, but as a way that someone gives themselves wholly to another, to God's glory, and that sexual control was actually an exercise of human freedom because we aren't just victims of our desires. And so those five characteristics were reasons that the early church stood out, but also reasons that the first century church was hated by Rome. Why? They were persecuted by Rome. Because they didn't fit the cultural context of the time. The reality is that 2,000 years later, little has changed. And the issues that are confronted in Scripture are human issues. And so we continue to have the same discussions and debates, and Scripture still stands with great clarity. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And so today we come to a difficult text. And I think for us as we read this, we need to keep in mind that often when we say that a difficult text, that a text is difficult, what we're saying is not that it's hermeneutically difficult. It's not hard to interpret and understand the language and what it means. When we say something's difficult, usually what does that mean? I don't like it. And so today as we're confronted with the text, every one of us will be confronted because we've seen up to this point, we saw last week that, that our worship shapes us and that, that the judgment of God is often in giving us exactly what we want and turning us over to the, to the desires of our heart, which is upside down from how we usually think of it. But what we see today is that our worship, if it's focused on false idols, will twist us. And so Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, this is what we read. And so they said, they are without excuse... We've ex they have, people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, in verse 24, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice these such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sorry, I read beyond the text just because I got caught up in the argument of Paul's making. So the context here, Paul had said, he said in, earlier on in chapter 1, I'm eager to get to Rome to preach the gospel. Why? Well, there were four reasons why he was eager. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to Jews and Greeks. Well, why is it the power of salvation? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and the wrath of God is being revealed. And so that's what we had seen last week, that the, that the wrath of God is being revealed in turning us over to our desires and giving us everything we want. And so today, there are three times that we read, so it starts, our passage starts with a therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in the text, you should stop and see what it's there for. The therefore in the text looks back, and what it's saying is that something has been given to us as a principle, something theological has been laid down by the writer, and now it's being applied to our lives. And so what's being applied is that people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So our idolatry has made it so that we are twisted in our worship. And so because of that, because we have exchanged worshiping the one true God, for having the affections of our hearts chase after other things, then it's in light of that that God gave them up. And then again in verse 26, for God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And in 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. And so this repetition, there's the first two are a progression. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity and dishonoring of their bodies. And it goes on then to expand that in, 20, in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions and goes on to explain that in more detail. And so in all of this, there's a theme throughout this text that, that the judgment of God comes when he gives us up to the desires of our hearts. That God gives us up to the lusts of our hearts, the things that our hearts run after. And, and why? Well, because we've exchanged the truth of God for lies, because we worship and serve things that were created rather than the creator. And then in verse 32, it summarizes this, but, but it expands it, that says that we know God's righteous decree. We know that th- the people who practice the things above are doing something that is, that, that is wrong and outside of God's design. But here's the thing. People not only do them but approve of those who practice them. And this is exactly what we see all around us. Romans 1 shows us that God's wrath shows up in giving us over to our desires, and what's amazing is that what we interpret as freedom, like I want the freedom to go and do this. I want the freedom to follow my heart. I want the freedom to just do whatever I want to do without consequence and without repercussion, that what we interpret as freedom ends up being a prison that we get held in captivity to our own self-indulgence and self-justification, and that will end with our own self-destruction. And so there are three characteristics in the text today, in the passage we read today, of what it looks like when God gives us up to our desires. Twisted sexuality, twisted minds, and twisted religion. And so that forms the grid for us today, the outline for us today. So we begin by looking at twisted sexuality. There is no more heated topic in our cultural context at this moment than the issue of sexuality. Denominations are splitting over it. There's no room for nuance anymore. It's, it's, there are litmus tests that people lay down, and that, for many, that is that you're either right or wrong. You're either on the right side of history or the wrong side of history, and we're at a stage culturally that sexual expression is lifted up as identity, and so to critique or even question someone's activity is seen as, a, is seen as a hate-filled condemnation of the person as a whole, which is untrue and unrealistic and unsustainable. 
And we don't do that for other areas in the same way, but something is different with sex. C.S. Lewis talked about this decades ago in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. In case you don't know what that is, he explains, that is to watch a girl undress on the stage. <laughs> it always struck me as strange that he includes that. Like, thank you. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting up the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that, that in that country something had gone wrong with its appetite for food? Do you hear what he's saying here? We know that something's different when it comes to sex. And the, the industry that is fueled in the pornography and adult entertainment industry and the billions of dollars that go toward it show that something has gone very wrong with our appetites. And it's, it's true of every one of us. None of us is, is exempt from this. Our sexuality is broken. That's what we see in the passage today. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creature who is, forever, who is blessed forever. Amen. He's, and this is true, that we've gotten to the point that we worship sexual experience and expression and indulgence. And as a pastor, I've got to tell you that there is no single greater source of pain and damage that I see in people's lives than that which relates to sexuality. That so many, I mean, the, the, the statistics are overwhelming, and it's not just statistics. I know because I know so many of you who are sexually abused, people that in our church who have been raped, people in our church who have who have questions of sexual identity and expression that just eat away at your heart and your soul. And, and, and it, the reality is that pornography has exposed our darkness. It's not like it's the source of it. It just exposes it, but it does exacerbate it. That it used to be hard to get a hold of pornographic material. Like you, had to, you used to have to go into a place physically and look somebody in the eye to make a purchase. I can remember the first time I was exposed to pornography was as... Um, probably a 10 or 11 year old kid, but it was because, I mean, kind of the classic, it sounds like something that I ripped out of a movie, but it, it was true because some friends in some like a, a tr an area of trees behind their house that to me felt like the woods, but I was in the Chicagoland area, so it was probably not. <laughs> and literally there was a hollowed out log that they kept magazines in that somebody had lifted from his dad's collection. And like, it used to be hard to pursue those things, and now, it is streamed into our homes and our phones and our lives, and, and, it, and shows have become, the shows we watch have become increasingly pornographic to hold our attention, and so we see, it's, it's amazing what's actually just put out there as a normal show that in, in pop culture now, and in that, the reality is that we're being shaped by it, that for too many children, pornography is their sex education because they don't have people speaking into their lives trying to show that there's anything else. And so young boys are taught implicitly that violence and control over women is expected in sex and even what women want. The women are taught that they need to submit themselves to pornographic standards in order to be loved and accepted. And so we shouldn't be surprised by the overwhelming reality of sexual abuse and rape and even in sexual slavery because what we're seeing is characteristics that the insatiable reality of human depravity pushes ever deeper into darkness and it's twisted every aspect of what we even understand sex to be and how it works and its impact on people and the beauty of the gift that God has given us is so much more than just fulfilling appetites and urges. And so what Paul exposes here is on the, in the background of an understanding of the Bible's teaching on sexuality, and, and so it, that comes up because now this passage pushes toward all kinds of sexual perversion outside of God's design, and then also explicitly says when, when, you've, when people have given up natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, both men and women. So it pushes toward the reality and the question of same-sex expression as well. And so within this, it, we need to talk briefly about a biblical perspective on sexuality. I don't want to just leave with these 
clear statements in the text, you need to understand the broader context. We, we get asked this all the time. I get asked this all the time by friends, by neighbors, like, where does the church stand on sexuality? And, and it, I want to be able to say, listen, there's, this is a complex and nuanced topic, and so I want to be, if it, to answer that question, it takes a little time to un, unpack. Because it's not as simple as, what does the Bible say about LGBTQ? There's a much broader question. The Bible, though you see all kinds of things happen throughout the biblical storyline, the Bible is not a prude book. But in the midst of that, from start to finish, it stays consistent, and it's far narrower than most of us want to believe. That when asked about divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, Jesus looked back to Genesis 2. When Paul talks about sexuality in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 and gender in 1 Corinthians 11, he looks back at the foundation of Genesis 2. And so the New Testament carries forward the design that is shown to us in the Old Testament in the design of marriage. And so in Genesis 2, it tells us that, that the man and woman were given to each other, that the woman was given to the man, that the first wedding was conducted by God himself as the father that walked the woman to Adam, the man, and that as she, as, that God had taken a piece of the man and made it into the woman and brought her to the man. And so Charles Spurgeon has said that, that it's significant that it was from the side of the man that woman was created because it was not from his feet to be tread over, it was not from his head to rule over, but from his side to be embraced in love and unity and equality. But as the woman was brought to the man, the man broke out in singing and poetry. Ladies, have you ever had that happen? <laughs> you just walk into a room and a man bursts out in song by your presence? Um, I promise it's happened for me internally. I just don't know that it's come out the way I would like it to. <laughs> and so the man said, he, he, it's po poetic, he says, at last, you know, the Lord brought, the woman to, he brought her to the man and he said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then it tells us, therefore, because this is the case, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. You see, what happened is that sex, sex is a union and a gift that God gave to join the man and woman together, complementary to each other, as one flesh, that they become family together through sexuality, and that, that, that is, it, it is out of an overflow of love and pleasure and enjoyment that new life can emerge through sex. The biblical presentation is that sex is the ongoing confirmation of marriage vows. It's the way that a husband and wife say to each other, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, I pledge myself to you. And it's, it's designed by God to be a gift where we give ourselves to another person fully. Now, in our text today, in Romans chapter 1 and in Genesis 2, there are all kinds of gymnastics people will do to, that twist language and context to, to make it so that we twist scripture to fit our desires. And we do that all over the place. But we need to understand that even in the flow of the argument of Romans 1 and 2, chapter 1 was written, and the first few chapters, written to a primarily Jewish audience who would have read chapter 1, and they, they had this whole history and standards, and, and so here they would have read this and said, yeah, that's where we line up. And so, but then Paul gets them in chapter 2, so nobody escapes today. And, but to be clear here, too, the church's primary concern on ethics and sexuality is... We're called to be primarily, if you're part of the church, to be concerned primarily with those within the church. And so Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says to the church in Corinth, he was saying, hey, there's something happening in your church that you guys aren't even addressing. There was a man in the church who was sleeping with his dad's wife. And Paul says, even the pagans, even people outside the church know that this is wrong, but you guys are just letting it happen internally. And he says, you need to address this. But then he says, you know, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, but not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world, nor greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Why does Paul not demand that of Christians? Well, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? 
It is, is it not those in the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil from among you. And so it's clear that the church is not called to impose that ethic outside or expect it of people who aren't Christians. And this is where the American church has so often messed up and expected people who don't claim Christ to care about the moral pursuits that Christ has called his followers to. Christians have held up homosexuality in particular as a differently damnable sin. And we just don't have any evidence of that anywhere in Scripture. The church has too often had a lack of compassion for those who struggle with the sins of sexuality or, the, or just struggle with sexuality, period. And it, and it often feels like what's happened is that a kind of 1950s white middle class leave-it-to-beaver norm has been lifted up as the only biblical standard. And it's, we've lifted the promise in the, at the same time and have tried to teach people, and we're seeing the fallout now, that uh, decades of teaching people that, that if you just follow a biblical sexual ethic, then what's going to happen is save yourself for marriage, and when you get married, then your sex is going to be perfect and totally fulfilling, and the climax of all pleasure, when the reality is that, that yes, there's a way that God calls us to use sex as a gift given to us within the bounds of marriage, but once you get married, sex isn't always easy. And so a lot of couples really struggle, and at different times you'll struggle, when at different periods of your life and seasons of life, it's not always easy. It isn't always something that's, that's just the dream. And, and the churches at times even stood against basic human rights on the basis of disagreement over sexual ethics. And so I know it would be foolish to think that, that some of you here hadn't been hurt by the church or by Christians in these ways, and, and particularly those of you who are part of the LGBTQ community. And so if you've been treated badly by Christians over these things, then at least hear from me, I'm so sorry. It's possible to disagree on these things and still love someone. And you need to hear today that no one is going to hell because of their sexual activity. The real question for every one of us is, what do we do with Jesus? That's the one question. Is he God incarnate, who lived a perfect life and died in our place for our sin and rose from death to life and ascended to heaven? Is that true? And if it isn't, then you can disregard everything he taught. Don't look to him as a moral teacher because that's, these are the bold claims of the New Testament. But if it is true then, and you're a follower of Christ, then we need to submit to everything he taught. And it's going to hurt every one of us at certain points to let go of things that define us. And so the reality is that the biblical perspective on sexuality is incredibly broad. I mean, Jesus says that if you even look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so as your pastor, I'm a sexual sinner. Every one of us has issues with sexual sin. And if you're a Christian, as one person has said, we're just blind beggars showing other beggars where to find the feast. And, and so my only hope, our only hope, is that God took action in the, in, by taking on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that it paid the penalty for our sin, that he had victory over our sin and over death, and that by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we have hope of salvation. And to follow Christ means we take on a new identity that challenges us at every point. And so this is what gets to, what's hard, though, and the real challenge is that sexuality has become identity. And, and so I want you to hear this today. We are more than our desires. You are more than your desires. You, there is more to you than your sexual desires. And in the, in the meantime, while we try to figure this out, lifting it up to become identity means that we are culturally conducting a massive experiment on an entire generation of children right now. And I know this because I have kids and I watch this, I see it in their friends, I see it and experience it, and that, that we have, and there's an irony to this because we've taken enculturated forms of masculinity and femininity to rule the day, and so we've lost a category for things like a tomboy. Now if there's a girl who likes things that are culturally boyish, girls are questioned, you know, are, maybe you're a boy. You, have you thought about that? Maybe you must be. And there's no room for boys who are sensitive and like things that are culturally typical of of girls. Now a boy is, is told maybe you must be a girl or you, you must at least be gay. And in preteen and teenage life right now, there's nothing that I, that's applauded more or seen as braver 
than constantly shifting gender identification and sexual expression. But as most of us know who have come through the difficulty of adolescence, that none of us know who we are enough to make life-altering declarations that choose our paths at 12 to 14 years old. And so there's got to be something more. You know, around us, there are three prevalent views on sex. That sex is appetite, that sex is animalistic, and that sex is freedom. And so sex's appetite tells us that it's like any other physical activity. And some of you might think this way, that, that you know, it's like anything else. I need to eat, I need to sleep, I need to have sex, or at least have the release. And so if this is you, you see yourself as a realist, that you're just fulfilling biological urges. Another way, though, is sex is animalistic. And so for some of you, it's not just an urge that needs to be fulfilled. For some of you, you've been conditioned in your life and your perspective to feel a ton of shame over sexuality, that sex is bad. And so this is a dualistic view, that the material world is kind of gross, and there's a, the, but the spiritual is good. And so we, it's, it's like, well, you know, I know that needs to happen, but you, you want to distance yourself from sexuality. And for some of you, it's the third way we see it is that sex is freedom, freedom from repression. This is a more romantic view, that, that it's discovering your self-identity and sexuality, and it, this makes sex a god that you pursue, that, that emotion and love are the only moral law that we face. But the biblical Christian view of sex differs from all of these. It can't just be animalistic and dualistic because that tells you that sex is bad and gross, but the Bible teaches that sex is great. And it's commanded. In fact, if you're married, it says, don't withhold this from your spouse because your relationship will suffer terribly if you withhold sex from your spouse. And so the Bible speaks directly toward it and celebrates the gift of sex. And so it's not seen in the Bible as, again, it's not a prudish book. It's not seen as something that's gross and to be avoided. It can't just be the appetite view. The, the, our passage teaches that today, that, that our desires often reflect a deeper brokenness and idolatry. I have an appetite for all kinds of things that I shouldn't want to consume. That's true physically, and it's true in just the desires of my heart. This is, again, the C.S. Lewis thing. If we had strip shows of mutton chops or bacon, which as a, carnivore, as a naturally carnivorous guy, I'm kind of like, I don't know, I might... I might watch. <laughs> like, how, how did they prepare the mutton chop? <laughs> but it shows us something about our appetites. It really does. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this. He, he says, and Paul uses this kind of argumentation all over in his letters where he'll say, yes, 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 but. And so in 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, all things are lawful for me. Yes, yes, yes. But. Not all things are helpful or beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated for anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This was the argument in the Roman Empire and in Corinth at the time about sex. And so they're saying, this is him saying, this is the argument you're making. It's just like eating. And, God, and he says, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body isn't meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He goes on later on in the same passage to say, so flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And so he's saying this isn't just an appetite. And our desire for something doesn't mean that it's the right thing for us. And so it can't be animalistic. It can't be the appetite. And it can't be the freedom from repression view. Because we're not defined by that. You are made in the image and likeness of God to reflect his glory and majesty and beauty. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 7, the next chapter from the verses I just read, Paul lifts up singleness as, as, as a legitimate and great pursuit of happiness with an identity in Christ. In fact, you might say that the entire trajectory of Scripture angles toward singleness. And as Sam Albury, a, a man who openly struggles with same-sex attraction, is a brilliant writer and thinker who I highly recommend that if you want to explore these things and if you're wrestling, go and read Sam's material. He's, he's really, really helpful. But Sam, Sam Albury says that marriage is a portrait of the gospel. We read this in Ephesians 5, that there's something of, of Christian marriage that shows the union between Christ and his church. So marriage is a portrait of the gospel, but singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. 
And so those of you who have chosen a path or find yourself in a place of singleness, you have a unique ability to show the sufficiency of Christ in your life. Scott Sauls, a pastor, asked the question, what if the church were the place where people discovered that being unmarried isn't a prison sentence, but an opportunity for grace and communion with Jesus and service to God's kingdom and mission? See, when sexuality is seen as an issue of identity, again, it means that to even challenge someone's behavior suddenly is an existential assault. And it's, we need to be able to begin to see through that. Now, it's true at some levels that, I mean, I am married. I've been married for, um, for this may be 19 years that Alyssa and I have been married. And so in some ways, I can't imagine what someone who has wrestled with same-sex attraction, what some of you have, who have wrestled with that for your entire lives have gone through, the fear that you have, the isolation that you feel, the doubt that plagues you, and the struggle of guilt and shame. You're right, I can't fully understand that. But it's also true that those feelings are part of the human experience that all of us will feel in some way in different arenas. And so again, it comes back to the question, who is Jesus and what do you do with him? If he is who he claims to be, then everyone who follows him is called to costly discipleship, to take up a cross daily and kill our desires and pursuits to come under his lordship in our lives. And it's to, it's to follow Jesus. It's a call to lay everything else down. And if, but here's the reality, that if Jesus is the perfect image and likeness of God, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, if Jesus is the fullness of the expression of humanity, the most fully realized form of humanity, we need to remember that Jesus never had sex, that he died homeless, poor, and a virgin, and to follow him is to find a new identity in him, and he shows us that our sexual activity doesn't define us, and fulfilling it doesn't, doesn't fulfill us. And so implications for us as a church, the church is called to love the LGBTQ community, and to love all sexual sinners, period. The church is called to be a place of hospitality, welcoming all people into community. And also to be clear that those who have followed Christ are called to lay down their lives and embrace Christ's call, whatever the cost, and not to lift up certain sins as more acceptable and other sins as more damnable. The church is called to carefully consider what it means to provide family for those of you who have chosen singleness and that those of you in, your, in our church who are same-sex attracted and have chosen singleness and faithfulness to Christ, you are the bravest people I know because you catch heat and criticism from all sides. And I know it feels lonely and you feel exposed and so I want you to hear that there's a place for you in this church family and if you're mistreated here, I want to hear about it. And so... When God gives us up, it'll show up in twisted sexuality. And in the next 10 minutes, we're going to talk about the other two aspects. <laughs> so, <laughs> second, <laughs> twisted minds. Verse 28 repeats the same. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so he summarizes, since this is the reality and our worship is offline, God gave them up to a debased mind. And so our minds get twisted. And then there's these characteristics. It starts with kind of overview to unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. And then it goes in, Paul goes into social sins, which Paul almost certainly was dictating this letter. So you can hear the rant happening in this paragraph, can't you? Can you imagine being his scribe here, where you're like, Paul, slow down. Like, <laughs> can you please? Um, and you can hear, that's where there's like some of the gram grammar, and like, you can hear and feel the emotion of it as he goes here and saying, saying, listen, now it turns to social sins and the way that we mistreat each other. Envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. And then he turns to sins of the tongue, gossip and slander. You see, these are being held up in the same light as sexual sin. He's saying it shows up in twisted sex, but it also shows up because our minds are wrong. Our minds have been rewired to, to, to be bent in our approach toward each other and toward God. We gossip against each other and slander each other, and, and gossip is just slander that happens behind somebody's back. It turns to pride, that we are haters of God, we're his enemies, that we are insolent and boastful, we are, we are caught up in our own pride. And then he kind of summarizes it again, saying, we are inventors of evil who are disobedient to our parents. Like, if we're going to, this is the thing, we need to see the reality of, the, of biblical sexuality and the call to those who follow Jesus, but also realize that none of us escapes this. 
And then he goes into the negative, where it says in the ESV, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is saying, we have no understanding, we have no faithfulness or fidelity, we have no love, and we have no mercy. And then as he summarizes what happens, though we know what God has called us to, we not only continue to do the things we ought not to do, but we give approval to those who do. Um, this past week, I was at some board meetings in Montgomery, Alabama. And looking ahead to it, I knew that we were going to do a civil rights tour. Um, and, but the, the, what has been created there to, as a museum and a memorial had a profound, heavy impact on me. Um, it's Black History Month. It, that's, it officially started yesterday. Um, which, to be clear... Black History Month exists because it is our history, collectively. That, it, but, but the history of the treatment of enslaved African peoples in this country has been so overlooked and mistaught that we devote a month a year to relearn our history. And it was started by a DC resident named Carter Woodson. And that's how it all began. And so this month, if you follow along on social media, I am gonna work to every day post a resource that's been helpful for me in relearning our history. And so if you want to follow that, um, I'm gonna, I'm, I have a lot to learn, but these are th I'm going to put out there some things that are starting points if you're interested in learning more. In Montgomery, they've built the Legacy Museum and the Justice and Peace Memorial, which is actually a lynching memorial with a whitewashed name. They, um, the, in, in, the Legacy Museum was in a slave warehouse. And I had no idea how the economy of Montgomery in the state of Alabama was how reliant it was on slavery. And the lynching memorial, the Peace and Justice, Memor Justice and Peace Memorial, was a powerful display that reminded me a lot of a display in Berlin, which was a memorial to the murdered Jews. And so I appreciated that it was such a clear and powerful look at our past because it commemorates about 4,400 racial terror lynchings in the post-Reconstruction era between 1877 and 1950. And most took place in the decades just before and after the turn of the 20th century. And that memorial, it has 805 metal pillars suspended that are for every county within which a lynching occurred, and it includes the names when possible, otherwise it just says unknown, but the names of those who were lynched and killed and the date on which it happened. And walking through it, and walking through the museum, one of the parts, I mean, there's so much that we could unpack here, but um, again, we have limited time. One of the stunning parts to me was the number of the, uh, it was to look at some of the pictures that were hard to look at, but see the faces of those who were involved. And, the, like the, to see the horrific act of destroying a person who bore God's image and likeness in disgusting ways, and, but then the faces of those involved that looked proud, that were so pleased with themselves. And I kept thinking about Romans 132. That though they knew God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And here's the thing, as we talked as a board, it was a diverse board, that as we talked that, that so many of the minority folks that I was with identified with the victims of the lynch thing, saying, I feel like that was my brother or my cousin, and so we're heartbroken. And so many, several of the white folks really tried to distance themselves and tried to say, no, I, I hated the faces that I saw, and I don't identify with the people in that picture. And, and listen, I know this is an extreme example, but, but we need to, A, face our history, and B, we need to understand that Every one of us is capable of what is shown in those pictures. Every one of us is capable of falling into a mob mentality. Every one of us is capable of violence and doing destruction to others. And our systems can be just as broken by human desire. And we all can identify with that. If you're made in the image and likeness of God, if you're a human being, then that person who was destroyed is your brother is your sister. And to look at the faces of those who are proud, we need to understand that our minds can get twisted just as grossly. And the same heart problems that drive us to gossip and slander and to destroy someone's character 
to pride and envy and murder and strife and to disobedience and, 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 and haughtiness and boastfulness this, that, that, and, and to whoever the other is for us in our lives that drive us to, to have no understanding or faithfulness or love or mercy toward people. That's an overflow of our hearts. And that when God gives us over to our desires, it will show up in our lives through twisted sex and through twisted minds. And we need to be careful and realize that following the desires of our hearts will not land us. We're not going to like accidentally slide toward greater righteousness. Now, the, the turn in the passage now comes in chapter 2, because now the, where it turns is for those who grew up religious. That, that, and some of you might be feeling this right now. Some of you internally might be sitting back and kind of clicking your tongues that the sinners described already, like, oh man, yeah. Those sexual sinners. Oh gosh, gossip, slander, disobedience to parents. So just in case that's you, we have another therefore in chapter two. (laughs) What's it there for? It's there for you who grew up in the church. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Oh, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, ju- you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge and practice such things, that you yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, this introduces the next couple of chapters, and, and it, it ends with the conclusion that our religious act, actions and our religious heritage are not saving for us. So I'm going to be short today because we get to spend the next couple of weeks digging into this, but the reason that we talked as a staff team and I talked with our elders as we were looking ahead to this, the reason that we have all three included today is because I want you to see that none of us escape. I didn't want anyone today to leave feeling justified because sexual sin isn't your hardest issue. I didn't want anyone to leave feeling justified if we just focused in on twisted minds, feeling like, well, I'm not, those aren't really my issue. And so every one of us is hit, whether it's sexuality that is hard for you, whether it's one of the characteristics of a twisted mind, which really hit all of us, but in case case you think you're exempt because of your great morality and your great, your great personal holiness outwardly, we need to see and understand that none of us escapes this. And, that, and so we also need to understand that Jesus consistently embraced sinners and confronted the religious. Look at his ministry. He never scolds somebody who's looked at as a sinner by the, religious, by the religious community, but he does have hard words for those who had God's word and clung to it. So for Paul, he includes these things that are symptoms that we have walked away from God and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Twisted sex, twisted minds, and now it also shows up in the ways that we twist religion to suit our needs and ends. And so there's something for us to learn here. Chapter 1 is primarily addressed to the issues of Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. And so Paul calls out the clarity of the sin of the irreligious and says, and some would have had, he would have had the full agreement of most of his Jewish brothers on this. Like, yes, those people are wrong. Yes, they know the right things that God has called them to. It's been shown to them in creation through general revelation. And they not only do them, but they approve those who practice them. Yes, they are wrong. They are sinners. And in the same way that Christians could be prone to just read chapter 1 and not in agreement with a tinge of pride and self-righteousness. Yeah, those people are under God's judgment. And then chapter two will hit you like a bucket of ice water. And there's two options for religious moralists. We either, he's saying, what is it? Uh, You either misunderstand God's judgment, and he's saying, do you think you're exempt from this? Or we misapply God's grace, and he's saying, do you think you're going to get away with this? And what he's calling out here, saying that, don't you understand that God's kindness and goodness to you is to call you to repentance, not so that you keep indulging yourself? Dallas Willard, author, calls this vampire Christians. I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your disciple. So excuse me while I get on with my life, Jesus, and I'll see you in heaven. God's kindness to us in Christ, his overwhelming mercy and grace, his goodness to us, if we understand them rightly and the spirit of God is moving within us, it will lead us to repentance. 
This is Luther in his 95 Theses. The first thesis is that when Christ, our Lord, calls us to repent, he means that the entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance. You don't ever stop. You don't ever become exempt from the need to repent. And so that's the hope for us today. Every one of us feels the sting and the cut of this passage, but God's kindness leads us to repentance. Now remember, as we started, it was because of early Christianity's distinctiveness that it had a sweeping impact on the world around it. And, and a life of repentance is hard and it's costly and it, it, it will look entirely different than the world around us. But it, we, if we remember that it's God's kindness and his goodness that leads us to repentance, then we can be a part of extending his kindness and goodness to people around us even when their sin issues are different than our own. And do you realize that? That every one of us, that's when we get most judgy is when somebody's got a different sin problem than we do. We have a tendency to excuse our own, like, well, yeah, 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 I like the gossip, but at least I'm not a murderer. It's like, the life of someone who has received God's kindness and filled with the Spirit will draw you to live a life of repentance. And imagine this passage today in the opposite, and you get a portrait of what that would look like in life. Therefore, God gave them up in their hearts to self-control, and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them, for they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the Creator who is blessed forever rather than the creature. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease in the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the reward for their faithfulness. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them up to a sound mind to do things that are proper, being filled with all righteousness and goodness and generosity and kindness, full of self-sacrifice and life and healing and openness and kindliness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up for the lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to their parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, and merciful. And as they know the commands of God, that those who practice these things are the possessors of life, they do the same and give a hearty approval to those who do likewise. And they don't stand in judgment over another, knowing that the judgment of God rightly falls on all of us, but knowing that his kindness leads us to repentance. And so here's the hope today. That if you've come to the end of yourself, if you're tired of looking for your identity in sex and in mindset and in religion and religious practice, that you can turn to Jesus and you'll be saved from the bondage of your own pursuit of freedom. And turn to Jesus and you can experience the grace and goodness and kindness of God and be freed to repent freely and love overwhelmingly. And so turn to Christ today. It's the only hope any of us have. Father, we need this and we need you. And so would you help us? Would you forgive us? Would you help us to, to see your beauty and goodness and grace? Would you help us to trust in your kindness that it does lead us to repentance and that repentance is where we can find life in Christ? We pray that you would reshape our hearts and give us hope and peace in life and that you would help us to hear the overwhelming and feel an overwhelming sense of your goodness and grace today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.